I will try to keep a steady pace as we come through this text because as we look at our text in Ephesians this morning, uh, it is a deep text. It is one that um, requires much processing and uh, dissecting, and that's what I've worked on throughout the week. And uh, I pray that this text will be a benefit and uh, encouragement to us and help us to grow in our faith uh, as Christians. Uh, So this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we began this exposition last week. And uh, we're going to be coming through this book verse by verse. And so we're going to begin in verse number 3, and we'll come down through verse number 6. Verse 3 through 6 will be our text uh, this morning. And uh, so just bear with me this morning, and uh, we're going to uh, expound this together and uh, pray that it would uh, bring God much glory and uh, edify our hearts. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He hath blessed us in the Beloved." title of the message this morning is Chosen by the Father. Chosen by the Father. Now, we opened this letter last week, and we see in verse 2 that Paul identifies his audience, those he's writing to, as the saints in Ephesus. And we established that the saints are those who are believers, those who are born again. They are called saints because uh, the Greek term hagios means holy ones, those who are dedicated and consecrated unto God. They, have been, they are people who were changed by the gospel, by Christ's blood. Now Paul and others took the gospel to Ephesus where he labored there for uh, about three years. And during that time, many sinners became saints through the gospel. And so these saints gathered together there. They uh, formed what is the church there. In Ephesus. And so that's the audience of this letter. It is to those who are the saints. And when we consider the saints in Ephesus, and they are receiving this letter, we may have some questions about the gospel and, and those who received it there in the city of Ephesus. Why is it that they became saints? Why not every person in Ephesus becoming saints? What is the purpose of them becoming saints? Christians? Why do some receive the gospel while others reject the gospel? And the answer to these questions rests in the redemptive work of the triune God. Now understand this, that Scripture teaches that God is a trinity. He is three distinct persons, yet one God. We have God the Father, God the Son, who would be Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, and they together in perfect union and harmony have accomplished our redemption for us. And so through this passage in verse 3 through 14, we see this glorious work of the triune God in planning and accomplishing our redemption. And this particular text is so beautiful, so magnificent, so deep and rich. In the Greek language, verses 3 through verse 14 are one magnificent sentence intricately woven together declaring the past, present, and future of God's eternal purpose for His people. 
It is comprised of 202 Greek words, which is about 246 English words. It is one long sentence. Now, when I was growing up in elementary school, English was always my worst subject, and lo and behold, it's the subject I use the most in life, English and reading and grammar and all those things, and little by little, I've gotten better at it, but when I was in elementary school, I was always corrected for having run-on sentences. Anybody else ever struggle with that when you were a kid? That was me, run-on sentences. But even at that young age, I don't think I ever wrote a sentence this long. I'm fairly certain the Apostle Paul has me beat in the longest sentence written. It is almost as if he's so excited about what he's writing. He just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. But we know that this is under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we have this long run-on sentence that by all means I'm going to uh, claim will lead me into a run-on sermon. All right? Uh, If I have a run-on sermon today, I'm going to take this back to Paul and and how he's broken this up, and how he's extended this. But uh, by all means, understand this, that though this sentence is long, it is not just filler, and it's not just repetition. It is the most glorious doxology. Doxology is an utterance of praise and worship. It is a doxology to the sovereign God who has gloriously planned history from eternity past to eternity future. And as you break down this passage of scripture, verse 3 through 14, you can see the triune work of each person of the Trinity. In verse 3 through 6, we see the work of the Father. In verse 7 through 12, we see the work of the Son. In verse 13 through 14, we see the work of the Spirit. And while each of them has distinct roles in redemption, they are in perfect union, working together as one God to the praise of His glory alone. Now, at the end of each of these segments, you'll find the same or similar utterance. And it is this, to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. And through their work, we get an eternal viewpoint of what God has purposed for His people. And so with this in mind, Paul gives this doxology to unmistakably reveal and remind those in Ephesus and emphasize to those who have not yet believed in Ephesus that there's one true God who is to be worshipped, and it is this God, the God of the Bible. As we know, and we learned last week, Ephesus was home to at least 50 different deities or cults that were worshipped. And so the saints in Ephesus here, they don't worship those deities and false gods anymore. They're not like other people. They've been redeemed and called out of the world through the gospel. That brings us to a natural question. Why? Why them and not every individual in Ephesus? Well, we see the answer to that in the work of God the Father, who has chosen his people unto himself. And this is commonly known as the doctrine of election as taught in the Scriptures. And with the doctrine of election, we see an eternal blessing that humbles us and brings us to praise and worship God and God alone. So notice in our notes here this morning, we have three headings, and I, have, I know a lot of content there. Some of that's just for your benefit. I will come through it best I can. But I want to, you to get this, and I want to carefully and accurately articulate 
what this text brings to our attention. Notice with me, number one this morning, the Father's blessing on His people. That's what we see in verse 3. The Father's blessing on His people. And notice just two sub-points here about this. The Father is the giver or the blesser who is worthy of praise here. The Father is in focus as the one who benefit or, or bestows this blessing. Verse 3 Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It is obvious here that there is a blessing upon God's people, and it shows us that this blessing comes from someone. And this blessing, Paul says, comes from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this phrase here, identifies God the Father as a unique person distinct from God the Son, that He has a role. Throughout the Scriptures, you will find God the Father referenced in such ways. 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Peter will use the same terminology, that, that, the, that terminology and phrasing of God and, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This identifying language of the Father is reminiscent of how the Israelites spoke of God as the God of their forefathers. Exodus 3 and verse 15, the Scripture says, God said to Moses, say to The people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So you see that identifying factor of God of our fathers, God of so-and-so. But it directly ties to what Paul's saying about Jesus. Notice what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus identified routinely... That God was His Father. Read through John. Read through the Gospels. Christ looks unto God as His Father because He is God the Father. But not only is God the Father, the Father of Jesus in the sense of, uh, of God the Father, He is also the Father of His people too. Now you recall in uh, Jesus after His resurrection where Mary came and met Him there in the garden in, in John 20 and verse 17. And look at what Jesus says to her. He says to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and who? Your Father. To my God and who? Your God. So the same Father that Jesus calls as His Father says He is the Father of all of His people too. And so as our Father, it is God who has blessed us here. No other source. It comes from God. Our blessed state as Christians does not come from ourselves. It does not come from other men. It does not come from the church. It does not come from the culture. It does not come from the government or any other source that you could possibly think. The blessed state of that, of what it means to be a Christian comes only from God alone. We are blessed by the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only source who has the authority and the ability to bless us in this way. James said in James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And what we find is that Paul is 
in this context, showing us a blessedness that is beyond anything that is of this world. But I'll have you note too in this text, because God is our Father and has blessed us in such a way as we will soon see, Paul says in verse 3, begins with two words here, which is actually one Greek word. He says, blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses a word here that invokes praise to God the Father. It's the Greek word from which we get eulogy from, eulogeo, means blessed. It's a message of praise and commendation, the declaration of a person's goodness. So when he says, blessed be the God, he's declaring the infinite goodness and praise that belongs to God the Father. And so he, since he is the giver who blesses us, the Father is worthy of praise and worship. Now, it is not as if he needs praise or lacks praise, but that he is worthy of praise. I want you to understand, if none of us here praise God, God's still God and he's fine with that. But he's worthy of praise this morning. He's worthy of praise. And as David wrote in Psalm 103.1, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And friend, by the end of this doxology, what more can you do but bless the Lord with all your soul? What more can you do but praise and worship our God for all that He is and all that He has done for us? Nothing is more appropriate for God's people than to bless Him for His great goodness. And that includes blessing Him in all things, whether pain or struggle, whether trials or frustration, whether opposition or adversity, whether victory or peace or joy. We are to praise God because He's good in the midst of all of those things. Notice with me letter B. We see that the Father is the blesser or the giver here. But we notice that the saints are the blessed ones. They are eternally blessed in Christ. They are eternally blessed in Christ. Now this brings us to consider the fact that who we are as believers are blessed by God the Father. Paul says of the Father who has blessed us. Who has blessed us? Now, who is the us in this text? It is the saints that Paul is referencing. Those who include Paul, but all of the saints, those in Ephesus, all those who are in Christ, it is those who believe, who have been born again, who by faith know Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, consider what it means to be blessed by the Father. The Greek word here for blessed means to bestow favor, provide with benefit. And as I read that and think about myself and think about humanity, who are we that we should be blessed by the Father? We are but the dust of the earth, given life by our Creator, and with that life we forsook Him in our sin and wanted nothing to do with Him in our life. And yet Paul says the Father has blessed us, has bestowed favor and benefit unto his people. This begs the question of how and why anyone could be blessed by the Father. And the answer is simple because Paul says here that he has blessed us in him. Who is him here? It is Christ. He has blessed us in Christ. It is Jesus, the Son of God. He has blessed us only in Christ. And friend, understand this. 
There is no blessedness outside of Christ. For only in Christ is there redemption. Only in Christ is there salvation. So those who are in Christ understand they have been made new in this blessed state. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? New creation. And Paul says, Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. This is what God has done for us. If you're here today and you know Christ, you have been blessed by the Father and you are not the same that you once were. You're new. Now, what is it that the Father has blessed us with in Christ? Notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, what does he mean by spiritual blessing? The term spiritual indicates both the nature and the source of the blessing in which we partake in. Since they are spiritual, they're not natural or material. They're not attainable by earthly means, by us. The spiritual blessings, understand, in Christ is the fullness of grace that comes with Christ. The absolute fullness of all that grace encompasses. That would, that would include everything. The, our, our redemption, our, our Christian life, uh, for both here and on into eternity. Everything that comes with Christ, He's blessed us with. 2 Peter 1.3 tells us, in the realm of our Christian living, He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You see that? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This blessedness comes in Christ. And so since these blessings are indeed spiritual, they can only come from one who is spiritual, that being the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit in the life of believers. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit has imparted these spiritual blessings to us in Christ. They are supernatural blessings to be enjoyed forever. And Paul says that these blessings are in the heavenly places. Now, Paul uses this same phrase, in the heavenly places, five times throughout the book of Ephesians. And so it indicates the eternal nature of the blessedness that we receive and know in Christ. Now, look at chapter 2 for a moment, and you'll see another usage of this, and just just rejoice in what is said here. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. We'll get to this later, eventually. He's speaking of our salvation and our conversion, he says, of the believers, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Look look at what that says. Your position in Christ. You've been raised with Him. Seated with Him in the heavenly places. So you understand that, that being in Christ means we already know the heavenly blessing and look forward to the heavenly blessing at the same time. Part of the already and not yet teaching of Scripture. And friend, here's the reality. That we in Christ, we're already... We're already victors over this world. Our citizenship isn't even here. Paul said in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our, Our names are already written there. 
We belong there. And so understand that this is the immeasurable goodness of God bestowed upon those in Christ for all eternity. And because of this blessedness upon us, we are called to bless God in praise and worship. MacArthur comments rightly on this text, and I wanted to share this because it was very well, well, well said. He says, when we bless God, we speak good of Him. When God blesses us, He communicates good to us. All we can do is, speak, is to speak well of Him because in ourselves we have nothing good to give. And in Himself, He lacks no goodness. But when He blesses us in the situation, is reversed. He cannot bless us for our goodness Because we have none. Rather, He blesses us with goodness. Our Heavenly Father lavishes us with every goodness, every good gift, every blessing. That is His nature. And that is our need. How amazing and true that is of what this text says. How amazing that the Father blesses His people in such a way. But this brings us to further questions. Why did this blessedness come to them and us? Were some sinners in Ephesus just more spiritually inclined to receive the gospel than others? Were there some that uh, were more humble than others? Why are they and we partakers of such a blessing from the Father? And that brings us to number two in our notes. We see the Father's election of His people. The Father's election of His people. Now, I want to break this down into three segments for us to understand. The first segment I want you to see is the nature of election. I want us to properly see what is being said here and what election entails. Because Paul, in verse 4, says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Now, Paul connects the blessing of verse 3 to what he says in verse 4. What exactly is election? Well, when you look at the Scriptures, there are three different senses in which election is used or, or, or areas. Firstly, there is a theocratic election, meaning national election, concerning uh, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God chose to make him a nation out of the seed of Abraham, the physical descendants of them, You read of that in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So there is a national election in the realm of Old Testament Israel, which should not necessarily mean automatically eternal salvation. For not every individual Jew under the umbrella of Israel was saved or a believer. Romans 9 and verse 6 through 7 will tell us that. Secondly, there is a vocational election which God has chosen some people for specific offices. For example, he chose the Levites to be the priests. He chose the apostles to be the apostles and uh, certain men to be prophets. So there's an election in the sense that God calls certain men to have a certain office. But there's a third realm of election that the Scriptures teach, and that is indeed an election unto salvation, which is what Paul is referencing in our text. So the doctrine of election here 
is the teaching that God has made the choice of whom His people will be before creation and has ordained in history that they will be saved through the redemptive work of Christ. This plain teaching in Scripture is one that the early church saints were well aware of. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, to those saints, in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4 through 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Their receiving of the gospel by faith was evidence that God had chosen them as His people. That's how we see this. And so through the Scriptures, we see the teaching that God identifies His people as chosen, as elect. And in connection with this truth, you'll see the words of election and predestined, all referring to this reality. Now, these words in this teaching are often ignored, rejected, and distorted by men. Disclaimer, the doctrine of election is a controversial doctrine among Christians. One that men have wrestled with for ever. <laughs> Forever. But just because something is controversial and beyond human comprehension does not mean that it is not true. So understand this, that just because you read of a truth in Scripture that you can't wrap your mind around doesn't mean you change it to fit what your mind can wrap around. So you must understand that the doctrine of election, whether one believes it rightly or not, the text of Scripture plainly reveals this truth to us. So it is our duty as believers to accept the Word of God as it's written and not try to change it. Now I want you to see this in verse number 4. Notice that Paul says, even as he chose us. Now I want to pause in verse 4. And I want you to see the nature of election here. Firstly, who is the... He who's doing the choosing. Is it the sinner? Is it man? No. The he in reference here is to God the Father, just as he opened the context in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the he in reference here is God the Father. Secondly, who is the us who are chosen? Blessed, even as He has chosen us, who is the us who are chosen? It's the same us of verse 3. Those who are blessed, the saints in Christ. Thirdly, what does it mean that the Father chose them? Chose them. Well, the word for chose here, according to the, the BDAG Greek lexicon, means to make a choice in accordance with significant preference. Select someone or something for oneself with indication of the purpose for which one, the choice was made. And so understand that the foundation in every sense of election in Scripture, any of the three that I showed you, it always comes back to God making the decision, not man making the decision. So in the context of salvation, God has chosen His people for Himself. Now, let's look at a reference in 2 Thessalonians, chapter number 2. 2 Thessalonians, chapter number 2. We briefly commented on one or referenced one in chapter uh, in 1 Thessalonians, but here we have yet another. 
Notice in verse 13 and 14 of 2 Thessalonians in verse chapter 2. Paul says to these saints, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you find in this text? Paul rejoices that God has chosen to save these Thessalonians through the gospel. It was God's choice of them. So understand That salvation does not begin with the sinner's choice of God. It begins with God's choice of the sinner. You'll find that is reversed in a lot of circles today. And if you try to show it the right way, get ready for a battle. This is the doctrine of election. Fourthly, in the nature of election, notice this. That the choice God the Father made of these people is only in connection with and through his son. In verse 4, notice what he says. Even as he chose us, those two words, in him. He chose us in him, in Christ. Who is the him there? It is Jesus. It is God the Son, the Redeemer. Now understand, this does not mean that we become chosen because we somehow made our way into him by our own volition, our own choosing, our own will. That would eliminate the free choice of God. To be chosen in Him means that election took place not bypassing the Son, but only coming through the Son. God has not chosen to have a people without those people being in Christ. So there's no wraparound of being God's people where it somehow bypasses Christ. It's only through Christ. That is how salvation has come to us. This is how God ordained redemption, as we'll see later throughout this doxology. Now, Paul also writes later in the letter of these eternal purposes in Ephesians 3.11. Notice what he says. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purpose is realized in him through Jesus So God purposed to save men in Christ. He elected them to salvation only in Him, not outside of Him. Now notice, fifthly, in the nature of election. When? When did this election, this choice of God the Father take place? And in verse 4, it makes it so unmistakably clear, the whole of what is being said. Even as He chose us in Him... When? Before the foundation of the world. God the Father made His choice of who is going to be His people in time before the world was ever created. And we find reference to this all through the Scripture as well. Paul wrote to Timothy of God's work and salvation in 2 Timothy 1.9. He said, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So you see that you were not given this blessing the day that you got saved. 
it was already granted to you before the ages or the world began. So you understand this. That nothing of God's choice in eternity past, nothing of God's choice is affected by me or by man. You can't get around that point, the fact that God is the sovereign chooser, not us. So by God's sovereign election, those who are saved were placed in eternal union with Christ before creation ever took place. Revelation speaks of those who worship the beast as those whose names had not been written in the book of life from the very beginning. Revelation 13 and verse 18 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written down, written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There's an old hymn that some churches sing, and the hymn goes, There's a new name written down in glory. There is no new names written down there. They've already been written. They've already been written. And so the fact that election took place before the foundation of the world proves it to be God's free choice and that nothing has influenced Him in doing so. John Calvin rightly says the same thing and comments on this text. The very time when the election took place proves it to be free. For what could we have deserved or what merit did we possess before the world was? We had none. We didn't exist. But that may bring us to consider how can God purpose before the foundation of the world to save chosen sinners through Christ's redemptive death on the cross? Because just as we were chosen before the foundation of the world, so also was the cross ordained before the foundation of the world. That Jesus would come into the world and die as he died to save sinners. It is all connected by God's sovereign will. 1 Peter 1 and verse 19 through 20 Peter writes concerning the redemption of sinners by the blood of Christ, and he says that they were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Speaking of Jesus here, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for your sake. This work of Christ and his redemption by blood, it was foreknown when? Before the foundation of the world. Now I want to emphasize this too. The word foreknown does not mean that God looked into the future and saw what would happen by chance. The word foreknown means that God has ordained what would happen. And that is why he knows what will happen. It's according to his foreordination. The Greek word there for foreknown literally means to choose beforehand determined beforehand. So God's foreknowledge, understand, is not discovering beforehand what's going to happen. It is ordaining beforehand what will happen. God does not learn anything. He's omniscient. He doesn't look down into the future and learn what we would do. He has already ordained what will come to pass. Now we see this truth of election in verse 5. It comes, con- continues on, and I have to break this into the nature, and then we'll look at the result. But notice the nature of election still in verse 5. And what do we find? He, who's the He? It's the Father, predestined us. Who's the us? It's the saints. He predestined us. The Father has predestined His people, those who are to be recipients of the gospel. What does it mean that He has predestined them? The word for predestined here means to decide upon beforehand, to predetermine. It really doesn't get much simpler than what the text just says. 
I'm not going to try to beat around the bush and change the text for the sake of those who don't like the text. We must take the text as it is, and he has predetermined this, how? Through Jesus Christ. The Father's election of his people is clear in how it would come to pass. But notice with me, letter B, under this election from the Father. I want you to see the result of election. The result of election. What is the result of the Father's election, him choosing his people before the foundation of the world? And I want you to start with verse 4 again and look at those first two words, even as. You know what that does? Even as. Even as connects the verse 3 to verse 4, that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, all the blessing that we read of in verse 3 is rooted in the doctrine of election. This connects the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to the Father's election of His people on whom this blessing would be poured. Friend, understand, this includes our justification, it includes our sanctification, our glorification, our adoption, and any other spiritual blessing that we could receive in Christ. The beginning and the ending for God's people has been set in motion by our sovereign God. Now, Paul makes this unmistakably clear. If you would, turn to Romans 8 and verse 29 and 30 for a moment. This is another passage that is very plain before us in the realm of this topic. Romans 8 and verse 29 through 30. This is often called the golden chain of salvation because it gives a specific order in which it comes to pass. And you'll notice in verse 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now do you see the order there? Those who God foreknew, same word that I mentioned earlier, chose beforehand, choose beforehand. He predestined, which led to being called. That's the work of the Spirit in calling us. Then he justified and glorified. This is the clearest snapshot of beginning to end. And this is the result of the doctrine of election of what God has done. But secondly, we see some more specifics about it in verse 4. Not only do we see all the spiritual blessings that we enjoy are rooted in the doctrine of election, but we also find in verse 4 that He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world for a reason, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Who were we before Christ? We were sinful, we were filthy, we were condemned by God in our sin. But in Christ, according to God's election, we have been made holy and blameless before Him something that was impossible for us outside of Christ. Holiness here expresses that moral purity, while blamelessness expresses freedom from guilt of trespass and sins in which the Christians formerly walked. Understand that we are holy before Him in Christ. That's our position, and because that's our position, we ought to be holy in our practice before Him, to live out what we are in Christ in our daily life. Peter also writes and calls them a holy people in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Paul's writing to Christians. I mean, Peter is writing to Christians. He's calling them this holy nation, this peculiar people. 
Paul will speak later in Ephesians of God's of Christ's holy bride later in chapter 5, which ties into election. So as God's people who are saints, we've been made holy for nothing less than holiness will please God. You would have, no, have nothing to do with heaven if you're not made holy in him. Nothing. Only holiness will allow us to dwell eternally with God. And that is what Christ has made us. Thirdly, we find in verse 5, Paul says that the Father predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons. Consider what that means. Adoption to himself as sons. To be adopted is to have all the legal rights of a child born into that family. It means to truly and genuinely be his child. Now, Romans were very familiar with adoption. Imagine being adopted by a Roman leader, being brought into that family. How powerful, how wealthy, how magnificent, how spoiled that must have been. But here's what Paul's saying. That doesn't even compare to being adopted unto God the Father. That doesn't even compare to being adopted by the Almighty Father. And friend, this is the purpose to which Christ came and died, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, Galatians 4 5 says. You see, as adopted sons, we have all the rights and privileges of what it means to be God's child. So understand, believer, God is not got some cold, distant, inaccessible being. He is genuinely your heavenly Father. Genuinely your heavenly Father, and we are His children. Romans 8 and verse 15 tells us, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, this glorious adoption, this glorious holiness, was predestined for us by the Father in eternity past, so that all from beginning to end we see it in the mind of God. But notice with me, letter C, the motive of election. We see the motive of election. Look at verse 4 again at the very end of that verse. You see those two little words, in love. In love. Now, it's debated as to which part of the sentence this belongs, whether to the end of verse 4 or to the beginning of verse 5. I tend to see it as, as the flow of it belonging to the, end, the beginning of verse 5, so which would make it read, in love he predestined us. Either way, our election has been carried out by love. In love by the Father. So, so what does this show us, Christian? What does this show us? It shows us that election and predestination, they are not cold, careless, arbitrary acts, as some many like to portray them as. Your election in Christ is rooted in the depth and warmth of an eternal love that surpasses our knowledge. The love of the everlasting God. In love He chose us. In love He predestined us. He set His love upon us before we had ever been born. Before our first parents, Adam and Eve, were ever created. You know, the word foreknew carries with it the connotation that God foreloved us in choosing us beforehand. And the Father has chosen us knowing all that we would be in our sin and all that He would make us in Christ. As A.W. Pink rightly said, and I love this quote, He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. Why did he do that? Out of sheer grace. 
sheer grace. The Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. See this love that we should be His children. And so we are. This is what God has done for us. This is what election has brought to those who are His people. What else does Paul say in the motive of election? You look at verse 5 in the last part of this verse. It says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There you have the root motive. Because God simply chose to do so. Now here's what we need to understand. There is no created being who can fathom the infinite, perfect, purposeful will of God. Now, we can ask why to a lot of things, but it all boils down to the fact that God does what He pleases and purposes. And that's ultimately where the doctrine of election rests. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and the seas and in the deeps. You try to explain away the doctrine of election, you lose the heart of what we see here. If you try to wrap your mind around election, you'll lose your mind. God is God, and He does what He wills to do, including election of certain people to salvation. Now, I put this in here just as a, uh, as a buffer to consider some quick questions regarding the doctrine of election. I know that this always generates questions. Does God's election make men out to be mechanical, having no will? The answer to that is no. We all have a will, but our will is bound to sin and will only do what sin allows. So understand that except God supernaturally calls a sinner to himself, that sinner will always turn away. There's no changing that. That's our nature. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No man can come to me except the, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. We find in Acts 13, 48, that when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Man, when I was on the opposite side of this doctrine... There's a lot of verses I ignored, and that was one of them. The same is true for those saints in Ephesus and for all of us who believe. Another question, does does election eliminate the gospel call to everyone? Absolutely not. The call to repent and believe the gospel is open to everyone. But not everybody's going to heed that call. Their will won't allow them to. Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Does election void the need for evangelism? Absolutely not. This is one of the straw man attacks of those who believe in election. That, oh, you don't believe in evangelism. You don't believe in doing God's work. No. The doctrine of election fuels evangelism. If your view of of election diminishes your evangelism, you have the wrong view of election. It fuels evangelism. Just as God has ordained the end, He has also ordained the means to that end. God brings His people to Himself through the preaching of the gospel. And so with election, we're guaranteed success in the gospel. We're fishing in a stocked pond. Fishing in a stocked pond. Paul the Apostle said in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's another big question. Does God have the right to make this choice? Absolutely He does. He's God and you're not. 
Romans 9.20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me thus? Many view the doctrine of election as if it's unfair. Well, let's consider what fairness actually is. If we all got what was fair, every single one of us would die in our sin with no hope of redemption. We don't want fairness. We want grace. We want grace, what we don't deserve. And friend, in the infinite purpose of God's will, He has shown grace, not to a few, but to an innumerable number of sinners that have no, uh, no claim in themselves, that deserve nothing, and is saving them from their sins. So understand that God, He's under no obligation to save anybody. He didn't have to. And yet he chose to save a multitude. Ian Hamilton rightly comments, the wonder is not that God would save some, but that he saves any. Now while the doctrine of election certainly raises questions for us, it must be understood that the mind of God is beyond us. And I said this in Sunday school, I think, that God is infinite and we are finite. If the finite could truly comprehend the infinite, the infinite would no longer be infinite. We are finite beings. And so when we look at this, there are many things in Scripture that are beyond our comprehension, that we believe by faith because God has declared them to be so. How can Christ uh, be both divine and human, two natures in one person? Explain that to me. How can God be triune, three persons and yet one God? Explain that to me. We can't wrap our minds around certain things. And in theology... We must allow some capacity for mystery, and this applies to the doctrine of election. How can God have chosen who will be saved and yet call all men to repent and believe? It's irreconcilable in our mind, right? But it's not in the mind of God. And Charles Spurgeon rightly said this, Whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it, there it stands. He has to just accept what Scripture says. Beyond this mystery, and I'll come to this final point, there is a specific, specific intention here for the Father in His electing purposes. Notice with me the Father's praise, number three. The Father's praise in His people. I'll try to be quicker through this section. I want you to see His praise is to His glory. His praise is to His glory. That's what's repeated throughout this doxology. The praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. And you'll notice in verse 3 that we saw that blessed be the Father. That's the eulogy of praise to Him. But now in verse 6, we see why the Father has purposed the election of His people in Christ as He has done so. In verse 6, He says, to the praise of His glorious grace. So understand, the Father's election of His people and redemption in Christ, it magnifies beyond measure the grace of God. When I came to truly see and understand and bow before the doctrine of election, I saw God's grace in a way I'd never seen it before. It's so much deeper than I ever knew before. He chose His people for His own praise and glory. He said this in, about Israel in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, 21, The people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. He says the same thing of us today, for it is only because of Him that we've come to know His glorious redemption. And let me quickly read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26-31 through 31 for a moment. 
I know you're getting hungry, but keep feeding here first. Let your stomach fast for a little bit. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why has God done it this way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right there you have it, what Paul is saying. There is no glory in salvation for me, it is only in God alone. I claim nothing, and neither do you. He should be credited for everything. As Paul says in Romans 11.36, another doxology, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There's a good quote there by Ian Hamilton, too, I left in your notes, but for time's sake, I'll come on. We notice letter B, his praise is through his son. His praise is to his glory and his grace, but understand that his praise is through his son. And this is the central focal point here. As this section regarding the work of the Father and his choosing, and his election, and his praise, and uh, his blessing on the people. As, the, as this section regarding the work of the Father closes, it bookends with the same blessing it began with. Notice what he says in verse 6. Which he has blessed us in the beloved. What verse 3 say? The Father has blessed us. What's verse 6 say? He has blessed us. But notice the central thread here. How is it that we are blessed by the Father? It is in the beloved. Who is the beloved? The beloved is Christ Jesus the Lord. You remember when the father spoke at his baptism and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Friend, if we miss this, we miss everything. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of redemptive history. While God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are equal with the Son and all perfectly working together for our redemption, the focus here shows us that the Son is the centerpiece. In every verse we've looked at in this text, what do you see of our blessed state? In verse 3, it is in Christ. In verse 4, it is in Him. Verse 5, through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, in the Beloved. Jesus, 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 Jesus. The Father chose us in Christ, not without Him or bypassing Him. He is the central focal point of the Father's praise. As Paul wrote in Colossians 1.19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Father brought to pass all this redemptive blessing through Christ. He chose to bless us in Christ, elect us in Christ, predestine us in Christ. In no way does this bypass Christ. It is all only fulfilled in Him. So what must this text do for us today as Christians? Friend, if you're a believer... You ought to read this text and you ought to just rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in God's electing love and praise Him for it. You must bow in utter humility and worship before Him with this. Election leaves no room for pride, only humility. 
And if you're not yet a believer, do not think today that because the Father has made a choice of His people that you have no responsibility. If you have not believed, friend, your call today is to repent and believe the gospel. And if you truly see your need of Christ, that He is your only hope, you come to believe on Him, you will be saved. As Spurgeon rightly said, all those who seek God are already being sought by Him. What a wonder this truth is, the Father has chosen His people. Let us think and meditate and worship Him with that mind today. Let's stand to our feet and we'll have a closing song. Father, we bow before you this morning, so thankful for this text of Scripture. How rich, how deep, how wide it is. Time really doesn't allow us to grasp everything that could have been grasped there. But I pray that what has been brought to the forefront today would humble us, bring you glory and praise and worship. That we would rejoice, Father, that you have chosen us and called us through your Son to be your people, to be redeemed, to know you eternally. And it's my prayer that if there's anyone here today that does not know you, genuinely know you in their heart, Father, that you would convict their heart of sin. Draw them by your grace. May they look to Christ and believe today and know of a surety of the salvation that you have given. We pray this in Jesus' name.